knowing what the quit criteria is for your employees is critical to deploying a solid retention strategy. It's so important to have systems and standard operating procedures in place because if we know that on average what we're going to get out of an employee is going to be two and a half years, you don't want to be so dependent on that particular person. If you don't know what motivates them, what keeps them there, the probability of you keeping them intact is slim to none. In law school, attorneys are taught to challenge everything, tear things apart, break them down. But the qualities that make lawyers great can be some of the worst for running a business. At every stage of growth, running a business and practicing law can feel overwhelming. And what happens when you try to add life and family to the mix? It can feel nearly impossible. You don't have to do this alone. I'm Maria Monroy, co-founder and president of LawRink, a leading SEO agency for ambitious law firms. Each week, we hear from the industry leaders on what it really takes to run a law firm, from marketing to manifestation. Because success lies in the balance of life and law, we're here to help you tip the scales. As executive director of technology enablement for tech systems, Lena Haviland oversees the placement of 300 contractors for the biggest brands in the world. She is her first guest that isn't legal specific, Learn some of the best practices in hiring and retaining from a woman in her A-game. Today, we get into the line between dragging your feet and making an intentional choice when hiring, understanding employee motivation for higher retention, why it's important to automate your training, and how to get over your fear of firing. Lena has been at Tech Systems for 16 years. This is how she got there in the first place. So a guy named Gary asked me the question of, will you enjoy working here? And, you know, do you even want a job or do you just want to hang out at the beach? And I answered Gary with, well, of course I want to be at the beach, but I need money for bathing suits and for food and drinks. So I would like the job, please. And he hired me. And since then, I progressed through the various different jobs that I've had. And at this point, I've done every single job in the sales tower and landing me to where I am today. Wow. That's impressive. How many times have you been promoted? Oh God. Um, let's see. A minimum I feel like of once 10. a year. Yeah. Once a year, I, you're like, great news. Got I'm like, again, how, how did the positions left at this company? Uh, I really wanted to pick your brain on hiring and systems. So let's talk a little bit, specifically systems within technology, utilizing technology, but let's talk a little about tech systems. All right, I shall. So Tech Systems is part of the Allegis Group. Allegis Group is a broad strokes, um, large company that has about $15 billion worth of revenue flowing through it. Tech Systems is a $5 billion entity underneath the Allegis Group umbrella, and we exclusively focus on technology. What that means is our customers across various industries, including the legal space, but mostly inside of healthcare, government, finance, and technology, They have projects they need to get done in technology that they either lack expertise, people, or process or tools around doing. And when they run into those obstacles, they solicit our help. So we can help them with as little as providing a resource to help complement a project that they need assistance on all the way through to turnkey outsource solutions. And we do this work globally and at scale. And it's a lot of fun because no technology project is like the other. And as we all know, at this point, you can't, you know, stand up and have a conversation without technology being part of our world. So it's, it's a lot of fun and incredibly rewarding. 
That's amazing. How many employees does TechSystems have? We employ 80,000 U.S.-based consultants. And then internally, we're at about 15,000 employees. We have resources all over the world, including Hyderabad, Bangalore, and India, the U.K., APAC, all across the board, EMEA. And in the U.S., we have over 100 different locations. That's ridiculous. You guys must have some crazy systems in place. Oh, yeah. Systems, processes, tools. I mean, it's been 35 years. The company started down in the basement by two guys, two cousins, like every good company does in some kind of random basement. Hopefully not a creepy one. And uh, (laughs) then it it morphs into something if you're lucky. So these two guys are able to spin up this empire and they're still around and attached. And it's incredible what they've been able to build. How many direct reports do you have? So I have 300 people because we're a matrix organization. They're not all by name and title badge to me. That would be ridiculous. You want the rule of eight. I have six direct reports that are all directors. And then we have 300 individuals that in some shape or form touch our tower, which is exclusively focused on the top brands in the world, including Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Meta, Dell, IBM, HPI, HPE. So all the hardware, software, ZAS. Um, infrastructure as a service companies and the megatechs all are in my sphere of influence. Wow. Now you said something to me before we were recording and I wish you had said this, that I'm not going to do it justice, but you mentioned something about, well, it's not just that we're in technology. We have to hire and keep this talent. Do you remember what you said? Every solution you put together, whether it's in your space in law or in our space in technology comes down to the people. How good are the people doing the work? And if we don't have proper full-time employees and consultants to do the work and retain them and attract them, you have nothing because no solution can be activated without the right people to actually activate it for our customers. Absolutely. And you started out as a recruiter, right? I did. Yeah, back in 2006. But I took the job because of helping people. My job exclusively for the first year of my employment was to find people jobs. Being an immigrant, being a refugee to this country, knowing how important it was for my parents to find work when we first came over, it was such a cool opportunity to be able to find out what somebody likes, what they want to do, where they want to work, what makes them really excited and passionate, and match it up with an opportunity at one of our customers. It's literally life-changing, and it's, um, it's interesting because I've gotten farther away from that, but I still find a lot of passion in talking to the recruiters inside our organization and surveying them on how they like it, what new challenges they're coming into contact with, because holding a book of 80,000 U.S.-based consultants takes a lot of art and a lot of science. Absolutely. I want to go back to your 16 years of tax systems. Do you think it's less common for people to stay at one organization for so long? The new generation has different priorities. So as we look at, you know, our younger siblings, our younger friends, coworkers, et cetera, they have different priorities. And the average tenure is about two and a half years at a given corporation. So what I'm doing is definitely atypical in terms of 16 years. I have a lot of partners who are in my generation who have been with the company 20, 25 years. That is not common for the new employee. They definitely get their experience. They get what they need to. They get in and they get out onto the next. To build that level of loyalty and continuity and work, is very rare in today's society. And I think that's why it's so important to have systems and standard operating procedures in place. Because if we know that on average, what we're going to get out of an employee is going to be two and a half years, 
you don't want to be so dependent on that particular person. You can be dependent on that position, but what do you do when that person quits? And I think every business right now, and I know it's definitely happening in the legal space, they're having a lot of issues hiring and retaining people. And a lot of people don't want to work. Now you have that silent quitting or what yes. are you talking about? I know that, exactly that, what you're talking about. That apparently is happening. There's so much. What has helped you stay at one organization for so long? Yeah, I think you really need to know your criteria to stay. And you hit on a lot of really good topics there that we could probably have a separate podcast on. The silent quitting is very real. Retention of employees, very real. And the need for systems, imperative. For me and for many others, there's criteria that you have that makes you want to show up to work. Last time I checked, hopefully none of you who are listening to this are forced to do the job you're doing. Maybe your wife or husband is forcing you to. I don't know. That's a personal issue that we can get into next time. (laughs) However, for the most part, you show up to work or you do your job because you've chosen to, right? So it's imperative to know why you show up to work. For me personally, it's the ability to be myself. Any company who doesn't let me be myself is not worth being at. It's the ability to make money and continued earning potential. Number three, it's the ability to continue to actualize the work and the efforts I put in into a promotion, into continuous progression, into opportunity. And lastly, I really want to help people. Luckily, over the last 16 years, I've had the ability to have four of these elements continuously be present. And for me, every year, I evaluate that and think, okay, am I getting these things? Did my criteria change? Flexibility was a new one that got added, especially after having kids. And that's another element that continues on for me. As long as those things continue to stay in place and I could be a good mom and a good friend, a good daughter and a great employee all at the same time and manifest those things, I'll continue to stay for another 16 years. But having that quick criteria really nailed down for each person and then you as the leader of those individuals, you talked about attrition in the legal space, knowing what the quick criteria is for your employees is critical to deploying a solid retention strategy. If you don't know what motivates them, what keeps them there, the probability of you keeping them intact is slim to none. Wow, that's great info. Maybe I need to reevaluate. Just kidding. (laughs) Um, The saying goes, hire slow and fire fast. Do you believe in that? 130%. There are plenty of bad decisions I've made. And usually it comes down to not listening to that philosophy. Higher slow doesn't mean, though, drag your feet. That's how you lose a candidate. You need to know, again, just like we talked about the quick criteria, you need to know what your hiring criteria is. And once a person satisfies that and you do your due diligence, you have to make fast decisions because through the interview process, especially when our new generation, everyone's evaluating you just as much as you're evaluating them. And if you drag your feet or you show disinterest and you're not selling the opportunity, likelihood of someone else picking them up and them not going to your opportunity is incredibly high. Similarly, the higher fast or the higher slow and then the fire fast philosophy, if you don't get rid of people who are not living up to your standards and expectations, and if those aren't clearly articulated, a bad performer can take down the entire team if you allow that behavior to persist, which is why that fire fast philosophy is integral to a business success and towards continuity of the good employees you actually want to keep. Why do you think people don't fire employees even though they know that they should or why they drag their feet? Yeah, 
I'd say it comes down to three variables. One, in terms of firing, people form an emotional connection to people and that supersedes the desire to get the job done. We're all running a business. And I think sometimes people forget that they're running a business and let the emotional components take over. Two, employers don't set clear enough expectations. Without setting clear expectations, they feel bad about letting go of people because they themselves have failed at setting up those clear expectations. So instead of going back to the drawing board and resetting, they choose to keep around these employees too long. And then lastly, there is a shortage for talent and there is a lot of work that goes into procuring new talent. People get lazy, they get tired, they don't have suitable replacements. So they say, it's good enough. It is a process to hire. It's a very lengthy, involved process, and it's one you must invest in if you're a leader. A lot of people take the lazy path and retain talent that shouldn't be retained. Absolutely. And I mean, I can relate to that, to all of those things that you mentioned. We've learned a lot in the past almost nine years now, and even before that, all of my management experience. I also think people are scared to fire. I remember the first time I fired someone, I was so scared. Now it's like, I'll fire people for others. I'm like, I'll fire someone if you need me to. Like I've done it so many times at this point that it just is what it is. And you're not doing them a disservice. You're doing them a disservice if they stay. Because if they really loved what they were doing, they would be excelling. You wouldn't feel like this isn't the right fit. Does that make sense? 130% it does. And I think on top of that, you as a leader are responsible for setting clear expectations like we talked about and giving them the tools and the processes to be successful, that's where you are held accountable. If they don't leverage those tools and bring the desire and the aptitude to use what you've provided, that is entirely and fully on them. So I think you should ask yourself, have you given this person that you seemingly hired for all the right reasons, the right tools to be successful? If yes, and they're still not using them, and you've been phenomenal in this arena, then it's time to progress to the firing phase. Absolutely. How often are you setting goals and expectations with your team? Goodness, all the time, um, all the time. But I'd say when a new member comes onto the team, that is a pivotal period of time. That first 60 days, I'd even say the first 30 are critical to learn each other, ways of working and expectations. And then there's team goals that you do have to continuously reset and ensure they're the right ones. What is it? The, the most constant thing is change. And nothing will ever be as slow as it is right in this moment. So our world, technology, law, et cetera, it's constantly pivoting. If you don't change in terms of how you address your team and expectations don't pivot to meet the new demands of our world, it's not going to be fruitful. Example, sales company, recruiting company. Recruiting from 16 years ago when I joined to recruiting today is drastically different. Whereas 16 years ago, it's a lot of a phone-based system, emailing was the path to reach them. Now there's at least 10 different mediums to reach individuals. There's LinkedIn, there's text, there's chat, there's adverts, there's passive looking, there is referrals. So you can't have the same expectation for a recruiter that you did in 2005 as you do for someone in 2022. And if I'm a betting woman in 2029, those expectations will continue to shift. And if you're not consistently resetting, that's critical. I will say the thing that should stay the same is your hiring practices and the expectations at a human level. My entire team knows 
that it is non-negotiable to be kind to our partners. It is non-negotiable to be truthful, transparent, and collaborative. There's those soft variables. And I'd say those change less. It's more so the ways of working and the expectations that need to be consistently refreshed, evaluated, and communicated around. Now, you mentioned not dragging your feet. Where is the line between making an intentional choice and dragging your feet when hiring? You have to have your criteria and your job description has to be very clear. And you have to decide for yourself what qualifies someone as having the right expertise in the areas you've outlined. So I'll use an example to illustrate it. When I hire a salesperson, they have to do business development, right? So business development is a core criteria for me to hire a salesperson. I have mechanisms to vet that. I have them provide me with information regarding how they've showcased their business development in their last place of employment. What executive relationships did you make over the last 10 years that you were selling? Could I call them to validate that you have that experience? Could I put a call into your references or your leader who would validate that you are this business development machine you speak of? Quickly have that conversation, quickly do the validation, make that phone call, don't hesitate, prioritize it, And then you've checked the box on business development. But if you drag your feet on, all right, I'll call the person they gave me in a week or in two or what I fit it in or after that Thailand vacation, you have an unmet expectation. You've asked for information that you haven't capitalized on. You could have validated that. And if hiring is really a priority for you, you would have validated that quickly. And if that component of the hire is critical for you, you could have satisfied that very urgently versus dragging your feet. So I think there's a reasonable time of response versus this lengthy period based on what you deem important for your hiring needs. And how quickly could someone be hired without it feeling like a rushed or, you know, like you're hiring someone in a panic? I think it's tough to put a timeline on it and that has to be self-developed. But I hired people before off of a phone video interview. We made a connection. I felt sufficiently validated in terms of what needed to be validated. And I was able to make that decision because based on what I needed and the consulting need, it was a three-month hire and it was something that needed to be done that was very surgical. They came as a referral from someone I knew who I trusted. The conversation was more validation. And once I had that, I knew that for a finite period of three months to do a specific piece of work that had been validated by a trusted reference, I could hire this person off of a phone video Um, situation. Now, if I'm hiring someone for five or 10 years, maybe I would have wanted them to connect with the team and have an additional conversation. However, this wasn't the case. So I think you really have to right size the duration, the impact, and figure out, do you have enough information for that duration and impact to make that hire more quickly? And my recommendation would be, if it is a long-term hire with highly impacted parties, consolidate the interview process. Because sometimes Joey can't make it. He's off in Paris and Susie's off cleaning something, you know, for her kids. And suddenly we've dragged on the interview process to be weeks. You've lost that candidate, both their interest and their ability to take on your job. Do you ever have um, candidates do a task? Oh, yes. All the time. I don't hire anyone without a task for a long-term position. So typically, one, it's to show that they actually care about getting the job. And I want them to do some effort to show me they want the job. So I will say, okay, great. I heard what you said. It all sounds lovely. I think you should put that down on paper for me in this fashion and then send it to me. They're like, well, when do you want me to send it to you? Well, 
I don't want to infringe on your life and your schedule. When do you think you could send it to me? So it's a great validation mechanism to see how urgently they feel about getting the job, how excited they are about showing you that work product, how they communicate in written speech as well as oral. And it's really critical. And sometimes that work output can be actually in an accelerator for them to get the job or a giant detractor. Like this person can't even spell. They sure sounded good, but this wasn't great. So I think it's a really good mechanism to use, especially in positions where you need them to have certain attributes that are, you know, both oral and written, but also as an accountability measure and to gauge that interest. Very, very effective. Absolutely. So we do tasks as well, and then we'll critique the task, even if it's like complete BS, just to see how they handle feedback. Like, do they get really defensive? Are they like, oh, no worries. Like, let me change that and send it over to you. Is it obvious that they are not open to feedback? And that's been life-changing. The other one is we always ask, what are your career goals as the first question on our first interview, because if their career goals are completely different than the position that they're applying for, it's like, well, then you're not the right fit. Why are you applying to do this job when your end goal is to go to school to be a vet? But it can be so hard to know what goes into selecting the right candidates and getting the right people is more than just matching a resume. So what makes someone an ideal fit for an organization? I think you really have to know who you are as an organization to answer that question. For us, we have core values and core values come down to relationships, commitment, collaboration, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And having that clarity of values is critical to hiring the right person because then you could vet for those values. And then you also have to make sure there's a definition that comes along with those values because you may think collaboration, super clear to everyone. Everyone should know what collaboration means urgency, very clear. You may have to define that early on in the interview process for someone or ask them to define it for you and say, hey, our core values are relationships, diversity, equity, and inclusion, collaboration. Talk to me about relationships. What does that mean to you inside of an organization? Talk to me about diversity. How do you see that manifest? Do you believe in diversity? What does that mean to you? And those qualifiers are really important. And then asking the follow-on question of, all right, you said you value diversity. You're kind of supposed to say that in today's world. Nice job on being PC. What does that you actually get canceled. mean to you? Right, exactly. You get canceled. I get it. Thank you for confirming. Uh, what does that actually mean to you? And how have you leveraged diversity inside your past organizations? And how have you ensured that diversity is present in what you do? So I think some of those actionable qualifiers are really critical to define those values and ask for examples. And that'll kind of showcase to you what kind of person is this that I'm working with? And then secondly, I think it's really important to talk to references. I really do. And not just who they give you, but the next layer of who they don't give you. I want to talk to you about remote working. Do you work remote? Does tech systems as a whole work remotely? And I'm talking about full-time employees. How do you feel about it? Do you think it's more productive to be in an office? A combo, what do you think? This is a really passionate topic across the organization because we have a lot of brick and mortar locations, over 100 in the US, like we talked about. And there's varying opinions on it. I do a hybrid approach, as does my team. So I think there is a lot of value in collaborating locally in office where appropriate. I think what's extremely not valuable is going into the office and doing things exactly as you would at home. If you do come into an office or you travel into a conference, 
Use that time to do in-person activities you can't do over the phone. I think the biggest mistake companies are making all across the country and nation and globe really is they're having people forcefully come back and not necessarily coming back to do the right activities, but rather to check a box. So in my opinion, the hybrid is great. I love the human contact, but there's also things I love to do from home. I'm extremely productive. We get to do this podcast today. I've had a full day of work. I mean, there's a lot of things you can do when you don't have to leave the place you're in and then go get dressed and then go and do the commute. So I think a hybrid approach is really beneficial and something that a lot of companies are adopting. But do you think employees working from home are less productive or you think they're more productive? As long as you set clear expectations, the employees you hire are good employees and they don't run with scissors. What I mean by that is, are they responsible and did you make good hires? If you make good hires, I don't think you have to be less productive at home. In fact, you could be more productive based on all the things we just highlighted. However, where employers fail is they don't set clear expectations and then employers don't know what's expected of them. There's misalignment. And then these employees are deemed less productive when it comes back to the failure of the employer. So I think that's really the variable on whether it's more productive or less. I think if you set bad expectations, it's less because you're not lording over them and standing over them as they do the work. But I think that's really a bad use of your time. <laughs> and then if you set clear expectations and you let them work from anywhere, whether it's home or hybrid or in the office, it doesn't matter because when someone's underperforming, everyone's aware why. And when someone is performing at an optimal level or exceeding expectations, everyone is also aware why. Absolutely. I agree. We all work remote. I mean, we're a digital marketing agency, so it's a little bit different. But I agree. I think if you have A players, they're going to, and they have the, there's a good culture, they have the goals, the expectations, the tools, the support, everything that they need. I don't think it's going to make much of a difference. Now, I do think that, of course, the human element, that's something that we miss out on a lot, except those of us that travel to conferences and we get to see each other then. But yeah, that is that one element that we don't get to have. Now, do you guys do any personality tests? So it's a leader by leader decision. I really like the Enneagram test. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I think that one is fantastic and extremely accurate. And I have all my team members take it. If you guys haven't heard about it, it's 114 questions and it really prototypes different people's personalities. I've heard of DISC being used and that's another we, good personality option. Yeah. So I, I love those. I love that stuff, period. I'm the girl that like used to read astrology books on the floor of Barnes & Noble. So for me, any tools to get a little bit more clear on who other people are and how they like to work, I think is extremely beneficial, especially to your point in remote environments. I think that ratchets up the criticality because it helps accelerate your knowledge of what you know about your team. So tell me what's next for you at Tech Systems. So my team right now, we're in the middle of a giant transformation and it's so much fun. So I need to get this team to the right place, which will take me probably a good six to 12 months. And I have a lot of leaders that are currently developing that I think could do my job, which is also, in my opinion, a sign of a good leader. You should always be working on your replacement and your backfill and bring people up along with you. Once I have those individuals fully prepped and ready to rock and get things in the right place, I'll be ready to either tackle another one of our verticals or move into a different position in our organization. I think the strengths I have are really quickly figuring out what people are good at and optimally leveraging them to drive a big initiative across a team. Anywhere I go to do that, where I could deploy processes, bring people together, leverage their strengths, 
will be a lot of fun. So I see myself staying at Tech Systems as long as that quick criteria stays intact. And as long as I'm working around fun people and having a good time, I'm going to be here. And regardless of what capacity that's in, it's going to be lasting. When deciding how quickly to hire, consider the duration and impact of the position. A three-month and a five-year hire have different approaches. Long-term positions should require a hiring task. How they perform demonstrates the level of care, a sense of urgency, communication skills, and how well they handle feedback. Once an employee has joined your firm, it is the leader's responsibility to set clear expectations, give employees the tools and processes to be successful, and understand their motivation to retain top talent. Thank you so much to Lena Havlin at Tech Systems for everything she shared today. If you found this story valuable, please share it with someone you want to see succeed. Subscribe so you never miss an episode and leave a five-star review. It goes a long way to help others discover the show. Catch us next week on Tip the Scales with me, Maria Monroy, president of LawRank. Hear how the best in the business broke out of limiting beliefs, overcame adversity, and built a thriving, purpose-driven business in the process. 